when did you find the song? When you were three years old or when you were 43 years old? John. 43, definitely. John! John! This is not the media. This is hell. And if this was the media, we would not have a guest on today to tell us that farm policy is not only something that is invisible to the general public, but it's also bipartisan, rubber stamped, and as our guest will explain, is an outcome of state financing of imperialism abroad that trickles down to rich suburbanites with big yards. And not small farmers or not-for-profits who are doing their best to feed the poor, and everyone for that matter, for free. Yes, worker-owned farming is a thing, even if you, like I, have never heard of it before. And there's a good reason for that. Those advocating for food being decommodified and free are not given a lot of airtime in the establishment corporate or even establishment public media. The way U.S. agricultural policy is set today is via a prioritization of what's best not for people who want to eat food but for wall street its shareholders and investors and not what's best for again providing food or as big agriculture likes to claim it does feeding the world you would think with all the supply chain problems and so many restaurants being shut down and even going out of business during the pandemic the agriculture sector would need emergency bailouts from the federal government But what if those subsidies far outweighed the losses the sector actually experienced in 2020? What if despite a pandemic, it was a banner year for food commodities? Well, you shouldn't be surprised as the subsidization of farming is a very undemocratic process that, as always, benefits the rich over the poor. There's never enough money for social services, but there's always plenty of money to prop up big ag and its investors and shareholders. I mean... It makes sense when subsidies are not based on the actual provision of food, but future profitability for investors. So what happens to farmers who actually want to offer food for free and whose desire it is is to give land back to the people? Well, as you might have guessed, in rural areas that have militias patrolling back roads and small towns for armies of Antifa agents, they become the target of white supremacist terror and harassment. Sure, organizing around the idea of food decommodification is a step toward progress, but as our guest argues, what may be needed most is mass defiance. In a few minutes, we'll talk to a farmer, warehouse worker, and independent scholar based in the state of Washington, who understandably only goes by the initials C.E. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Wednesday, which means producing today's show is Richard Norwood. I have not seen you for a couple of weeks, Richard. How was yes. your trip back to uh, Pennsylvania for Thanksgiving? Was it in- eventful in any way? It was uh, 
fairly non-eventful, which was nice. <laughs> uh, the most uh, challenging thing was getting my dad to learn how to use a new cell phone. Oh, really? <laughs> he, he's, no, he's by no means a Luddite, but he's definitely an old dog, and getting him to learn new tricks is very hard. Does it have a gigantic number pad on it? It, it does, yes. Is it from U.S. <laughs> Cellular by chance? No, Okay. but it's one of those similar type of situations, but... So it was a little bit easier to use, and uh, but yeah. So wait, I, you drove to Pennsylvania? Yes, I did. Did you stop to get gas anywhere? Yes, I did. And how frightening was that? It was not frightening at all. I, there Wednesday, I, I drove back on uh, Wednesday, and um, there was definitely a lot more traffic than I've ever seen on the highway system. No kidding. In the last couple of years, but it wasn't like it wasn't too bad. Like there was a couple slowdowns for construction but it wasn't it wasn't overwhelmingly bad but there was definitely a lot of people on the on the highway system when i came back it came back on monday and it was like free and clear there was a hardly it was like back to its normal like pandemic level of non-traffic <laughs> so did you go into any gas stations or just pump at the pump and no, then you never went inside no well you know i had to stop at the rest stops you know to take care of business but um but no i didn't i didn't yeah i mean the rest stops were kind of weird it depends on which state it was but some of them were you know a lot of people without masks or whatever but overall it wasn't too bad i did not see hardly anybody wearing a mask in michigan except for at the right when you come across the indiana michigan border at the visitor center there the rest area there i did see maybe 50 percent of the people were wearing masks but those people seemed to be coming from indiana and illinois and when i got northern and sure. more north into michigan nothing it was really frightening especially the county i was in which is the hottest hot spot in the hottest state when it comes to COVID infections, which is Michigan. So it was, for me, it was really frightening. My holiday would have been much better if it was not f for my suffering from bronchitis, and especially if I had followed my doctor's orders and I, that I do not imbibe too much because it could aggravate and worsen my symptoms. And my symptoms have sucked. I wake up with the feeling that all night long somebody has been using my Adam's apple as a speed bag. And if you have never been punched in the throat, well, good for you. However, I have many many times. In middle school, there was a short period of time, which lasted far too long, when people between classes, as students were going from one classroom to another, when it was very trendy for boys to punch other boys in the throat who were not expecting it. Look, it wasn't a good school. It was a very violent school with a lot of real annoying people in it. But man, has this throat pain taken me back to the innocent days of yore when punching each other in the throats was cool. So after taking steroids and using an inhaler as prescribed by my doctor, things were only getting slightly better. Then last night and this morning, the pain has finally subsided to a much greater degree than it has for the last couple of months. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I've started following my doctor's orders of not parting too much, or it's because I gargled with a salt water solution, something he didn't suggest, but I found online. After a week of steroids and repeated, repeated blasts from an inhaler, a salt water solution may have cured my bronchitis. I'm hoping at least. Go figure. But more importantly than my throat feeling like it has been used like a speed bag, Richard, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what is the best thing you found lying in the street? 
What is the best thing you ever found lying on the street? That is a good question from hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, get wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now. The winter beanie, the trucker's cap, the t-shirts, the tote bags, the coffee mug, the medical face covering, the regular face covering, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive which features dozens of interviews from the 2000s you can find all of that right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support remember this is hell is completely listener supported we take no grants we cannot afford to be a not-for-profit and we have no commercials and will never have any commercials so without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to those of you who did go to thisishell.com and clicked on support recently and picked up some great holiday gifts while they were at it. Thanks to Thomas in Monroe, Michigan, who picked up a winter-lined beanie or toque, if you prefer. Thanks to Craig here, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Craig. Thanks to Craig here in Chicago, who got both a This Is Hell face cover and a This Is Hell t-shirt. And wait, thanks to Thomas again went back and got another winter hat. Thanks, Thomas, Craig, and thanks to Thomas again. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Thursday show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff has a theory about drunk cave people Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our interview with CE it's Tuesday so we're reading your email sent to Chuck at this is hell.com with your guest and topics it's Wednesday today. Oh, thank you wow I'm gonna find that happening in these scripts every <laughs> so yeah that's right I'm going back in time again it's Wednesday, so we're reading your email sent to Chuck at thisishell.com with your guest and topic suggestions and whatever else you want to tell us about the show. Remember, if we have your guest or topic suggestion on the show, we'll thank you on air during the interview with your guest or topic suggestion. As we will be playing our 10 favorite shows or interviews from 2021 during the last two weeks of this year while we take time off for the holidays, we are also asking what is or are your favorite interview or interviews show or shows that you heard on This Is Hell this year. Again, if we play your suggestion during our best of shows over the past the final two weeks of 2021, we will thank you personally on air. We got a message via Facebook from Sam that I think Alex actually read on our Patreon podcast, which streams live on Friday mornings at 10 Chicago time and his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. But I wanted to address it here on our non-subscriber show uh, outside of the paywall. Sam writes to my favorite podcast, what anesthetizes you against the terror of existence in the post-industrial climate emergency, neo-feudal, billionaire playground, meat grinder economy? Well, Sam, I anesthetize myself by imbibing and all the things that my doctor insists I not imbibe in due to my bronchitis. Knowing the hell we all face today, I can only drag myself out of bed and there is no way I would make it out of over here to the studio without caffeine, which you're not supposed to imbibe in while fighting bronchitis after the show i often smoke but not cigarettes because they're far more dangerous than what i smoke and enjoy but smoking is obviously not good while fighting bronchitis 
Later in the evening, I might have a beer or two or six or ten to anesthetize myself. But again, drinking alcohol does not help in any battle with bronchitis, which means, Sam, all of the ways in which I anesthetize myself against the terror of existence in this post-industrial climate emergency, neo-feudal, billionaire playground, meat grinder economy are currently unavailable to me. Sure, we could do a fun time, happy time show that wallows in popular culture talking about the latest fad or celebrity, promoting performances endorsed by huge corporations, and we'd make a lot more money doing so. I am absolutely certain that if our show was about nothing but sports, movies, and the latest streaming TV series, and for all of you who say you don't watch TV but you watch Netflix on your computer, you're still watching TV. We would have a much larger audience and be making a ton more money. However, I know me, and if I was willfully ignorant of the reality of our world today, at some point I would likely snap when I finally realized that this is hell, so Sam, I anesthetize myself in any way I can, but it's the only way I can deal with reality other than pretending it does not exist. Yesterday we mentioned how we had an actual package sent to us in the actual mail here at This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. But we had no idea who sent it to us. We had a guess, but we still were uncertain who sent us a pound of mulberries, walnuts, and raw honey. No note was included, so we had to speculate as to who sent us such a kind gift. Well, the mystery has been solved, and we will tell you who the sender is following our conversation with CE on worker-owned farming. Coming up, the decommodification of food, and Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what is the best thing you ever found lying on the street? What is the best thing you ever found lying on the street? And I will be congratulating the New York Times. I know, it's a weird thing to do, but don't worry, it's very backhanded. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. This is hell. During a pandemic, you would think the agriculture sector would suffer what with supply chain issues, its dependence on migrant workers who are increasingly being stopped at the border, competition from China, and the closing of restaurants. But what if instead of suffering from the pandemic, big agriculture raked it in more than ever? Well, according to our guest, that says a lot about U.S. agriculture policy, agricultural policy, and how it is geared toward profiting Wall Street far more than it is toward actually feeding the world, as it claims it does. Here to help us understand that there is an alternative when it comes to farming, CE wrote the new inquiry article, Farming in the Shadow of the Shadow State, Growing Food and Getting Free in the World Built for Agricultural Capital. Welcome to This is Hell, CE. Good morning. How's it going? Good. It's great to have you on the show. So uh, CE is a farmer, warehouse worker, and independent scholar based in Washington State. I just want to start with a, a, one of the... I, with the title of your piece, actually, because you cite uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, you write, mm-hmm. an even greater field of grassroots groups come to rely on funding, legal status, or resources provided by these formal organizations laboring in the shadow of the shadow state, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore describes. What is meant by the shadow of the shadow state? Sure. So the shadow state is a... Uh concept or turn of phrase that Ruth Wilson Gilmore picked up from another scholar. I actually pulled it up. It, her name was uh, Jennifer Walsh. Um, and that concept was used to describe the 
growth of this like voluntary sector. So all the nonprofits that kind of picked up the pieces where in the 60s and 70s, you had these uh, great society kind of social programs. And so the nonprofit sector picks up all of these programs and then starts to manage it. And it's happening without a lot of oversight, a lot of uh, public accountability. And so it looks like this kind of shadow state where you have a state that the state says, no, 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 that's not us. That's a formal or an informal community group or a nonprofit corporation, basically uh, kind of disavowing accountability. So uh, yeah. <laughs> and so Ruth Wilson Gilmore picks up that concept to uh, describe the nonprofit industrial complex and talk about how that works and how grassroots organizations really come to rely on these, uh, yeah, parts of the shadow state, the nonprofit industrial complex. You write, when June came, we were flooded. It wasn't all that rainy, not by Seattle standards, but it didn't stop for three gray weeks. The river swelled and almost everything we had planted was quietly blotted out, strangled in mud and roads, like many from my generation of recession-minted radicals. We had made a difficult choice to try something lonely, new, and slow, though hopefully not far in spirit from the port shutdowns and occupations of our youths. We would grow vegetables and test the idea of worker ownership to see what either could do for liberation. Now, we've had guests discuss the concept of worker-owned businesses, especially factories on our show in the past. However, we have never discussed the concept of worker-owned farming. When you embarked on this process, what was the state of worker-owned farming? What did you use as a template or example to judge or guide your worker-owned farming project? That's a great question. Um, there aren't a lot of worker-owned farms, and there definitely weren't a few years ago. Um, there are kind of just a few examples. There was kind of a spate of them, I think around the 80s and early 90s that got started. I think during kind of the peak of, there was kind of a peak of enthusiasm for cooperatives around that late 80s, early 90s moment. A lot of books about the Mondragon Corporation um, and uh, yeah, cooperativism really kind of took off as an idea. Uh, as far as worker-owned co-ops go, there's not very many in ag, and most of us are <laughs> uh, struggling, or it's a challenge to retain worker ownership or expand worker ownership. But yeah, there's a few. There's, uh, gosh, I mean, I could name plenty of them, but uh, and it comes from a lot of different sectors. So there are some that uh, started from farm workers' movements. So locally, there's uh, a... Uh, a farm workers union called uh, Familias Unidas por la Justicia. Um, and they, a few um, people who were managers at a blueberry farm, uh, got fired. And then, in the process with their union uh, and with the solidarity organization that they work with, they decided to start a cooperative. And so, there's a farm worker owned worker co op um, that is up in Whatcom County called uh, Tierra y Libertad. And so they're growing blueberries and like have some really big plans for housing and all of that stuff. So really inspiring stuff. So there are um, cooperatives that come out of farm worker struggles. There are also some that come just out of, uh, yeah, I don't know how to describe it, but fun middle-class wingnuts, uh, <laughs> not unlike me, uh, who want to 
start a farm, want to do it for justice liberation-y reasons, and are interested in building wealth in that way. And so there's a really wide spectrum of people trying to do it. And yeah. You point out that on the streets, if you listened, it was a contrary agenda, a platform for development of the food system. A looted target in Minneapolis made the case that the materials of social reproduction, food, cleaning supplies, and uh, all the, those sundry goods should be free. Thousands of mutual aid projects launched, notably grocery delivery and community fridges, operating on the premise that food can be free and that neighborhoods possess the ability to manage this resource in our neighborhood up here on Howard Avenue. For people who are listening here in Chicago, uh, there is a community fridge if you need any. To what extent is worker-owned farming about providing food for free to those who are in need? Or is it about providing food for free for everybody? That is a great question. So worker ownership is like something that I think is a really, it is really open to being contested politically because I think that there's a lot of different visions of what worker ownership is and a lot of uh, structural challenges when it comes to worker ownership. I think like our farm is really a great example. And it's one of the reasons that I wanted to bring our experience into um, into this essay. So I talk a little bit later about kind of what it is like being disciplined by this whole nonprofit um, industrial complex and like bureaucratic state systems. And what ends up happening is that, uh, you know, we're under basically market pressures. We have to maintain our cost of living. We have to uh, make rent basically. Um, and at the same time, we're also, uh, the way that we access land, the way that we access uh, funding, access capital improvements, a lot of it is about proving kind of profitability. So we're locked in place trying to generate some kind of profit for ourselves. The challenge there is that uh, food prices are low, the work is really hard, and we have a pretty small land base. I think generally, if you're not coming into a whole bunch of land and a whole bunch of money, like a multi-million dollar inheritance, you don't really, uh, you're not going to have more than a few acres to work with. And that's challenging to make a living out of. So we got our farm started and really like, we were hoping to see how we could balance it. So sell some, give away as much as we can. And it was a challenge to give away food. Um, a lot of the infrastructure isn't there. A lot of the um, time wasn't there. We had to spend most of our time uh, trying to make money, trying to hustle, trying to uh, make a small business work. And that's one of the challenges with the worker-owned sector is that I think uh, there is a really huge tension between uh, very radical ambitions that I think most people have in that sector and then uh, practical challenges of running a small business. So uh, there's a way where the ownership has been democratized. However, you still have that whole surplus value generation like motor underneath it all. And that in and of itself is a real challenge. So trying to overcome those structural limits is something that I think a lot of us are working towards and also doesn't necessarily come from worker ownership. 
You know, that reminds me of something that happened uh, here at the local National Public Radio Station. Uh, there was an award-winning show, I think it was called Odyssey, and it got had a lot of listeners, uh, but they said that they were spending so much time writing grants, trying to get money, that they couldn't put the effort, they weren't making enough money from grants, even though they were winning awards, even though they were getting listeners, even though people were donating to the station because of the show, they essentially didn't have the time to work on the show, and they weren't making enough money from grants. So do you have to be profitable even when you are a not-for-profit? Is that how the system works when it comes to prop, when it comes to farming? When it comes to farming, it's a little more complex than that because a lot of it is that you have a lot of for-profit businesses that are housed under larger nonprofits. So the nonprofits, uh, their funding is coming from the USDA. So the USDA um, is often dispersing money from the Agricultural Marketing Service. And so if you look at the name there, the purpose of the AMS is to, uh, you know, create opportunity, scare quotes, to um, for farmers, which means like getting returns. It means having profitable businesses that are doing well. So if you are a nonprofit whose organization uh, is set up to like, you know, create the next generation of farmers, the money that you're getting from the USDA AMS, and as well sometimes from uh, private philanthropists, is being defined, like what it's for is producing viable businesses. So the discipline comes in on kind of multiple fronts. The business that has been created by that, like just to stay alive <laughs> has to make money. And the nonprofit that has been uh, granting access to land is like under pressure from above to demonstrate that they are um, building this bottom line, that they are creating profitable businesses. So the nonprofit themselves don't have to uh, be profitable, but they are under uh, basically this kind of bureaucratic pressure to produce profitability for other people. You point out that in Seattle's Capitol Hill Occupied Protest, also known as the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, Marcus Henderson of Black Star Farmers planted vegetables in the occupied city park, saying in an interview, if we can free the land, everything else will literally become free. Earlier in the year, you write, uh, rail and highway blockades proliferated across Canada and the United States in solidarity with uh, Unistoten and the longstanding Wet'suwet'en-led uh, project to protect unceded territory from incursions by industries such as the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, a project that had long linked the demand for land back to healthy and decommodified food. Visions of abolition, decolonization, socialism, and the end of racist violence converge around food and land as a site of struggle. So my first question is, why do you think it converged around food and land as a site of struggle? What does food and land have to do with all the struggles, whether it's abolition, decolonization, socialism, or the end of racist violence? Yeah, I think that that's a really complex question. I think it's really easy to, um, I think it's really easy to generalize perhaps a little bit more than there actually is. Part of it is when it comes to food, uh, food is really cheap. I think that like that's something that people often neglect is that the ability to help people with food is really available. So a mutual aid project where everybody is chipping in for a little bit of food um, can work 
significantly better than, for example, um, you know, people even struggle with like coats, backpacks, like these kinds of things that the community also needs are significantly more expensive. So I think a lot of people uh, turn to food pretty quickly um, as a way to chip in because it is available to a lot of people. On the other hand, um, I think there is a piece about food justice and uh, land that I think really speaks to creativity in a way, or kind of uh, like a, a radical like visioning. I think a lot of people, um, there's something about a garden that feels free. There is something about the ability to tend for the land and uh, engage with other people in that way that speaks to a broader vision. So the idea that like, you know, our cities could be gardens, that we could be caring for the world, feeding ourselves, feeding our communities without the hustle, without, uh, you know, doing like free activity and the free association of producers as, you know, Marx would have it. Um, and then there is another aspect to it, which is really uh, very particular struggles about um, indigenous people and black people in the United States, like where there are, there have been organized campaigns of dispossession that have led to existing challenges for those groups of people. And so uh, when you see people talking about land back and uh, the struggle for like reparations for slavery, like these are long, long, long standing struggles. And yeah, I think it's just kind of coming up again and being brought back um, into the popular discussion. And as you write in your article, you write, so we stood in a soggy farm on rented land in a sad suburb, both near and far from the uprisings that shook everything with only, by the way, the phrase, a sad suburb is wonderful. With only a few <laughs> exceptions, we stayed glued to the live streams and worked our town had one moving but fairly tame demonstration when it comes to Black Lives Matter, and it was beyond us to commute to the city. Both one town north and one town south militias of white dads formed armed patrols, convinced that Antifa looters were coming. Did you ever see these kinds of patrols, and if so, what was your reaction? Did it surprise you that people in your community would arm themselves against the, those who are supposedly fighting against fascism. Uh, it did not surprise me very much. Um, <clears throat> so because it was literally one town north and one town south, uh, they didn't really come to our town. Uh, but it was a, such a bizarre process. Like, I remember hearing from uh, one of my friends who lives in that town south, like, oh, did you hear? Apparently there's people who are, like, coming to... I'll just say it, who are coming to downtown Kirkland to protest. And I was like, really? Like, why would they do that? Kirkland is like a very, uh, like an incredibly boring suburb that um, is mostly kind of a bedroom community for people who work for Microsoft and uh, some of the other tech companies in the area. And so it was just like, I, you know, I was just perplexed. I was like, is that really what's happening? And then, uh, seeing on the news like all of these you know just boring middle-class guys with like huge guns walking around downtown being like we're gonna defend the suburbs and it was just silly like <laughs> it's like it was less scary than it was ridiculous uh 
but at the same time, yeah, it's like those guys I'm a little bit less worried about than, uh, I don't know how to describe it. In this area in Washington, there's just a lot of uh, white guys with guns and uh, a lot of harassment. I think the bulk of it um, doesn't really occur in a like organized militia way, but yeah, I don't know. It was it was weird. It was kind of scary, um, and it was also very ridiculous because they're responding to like you know, I don't know, just nonsensical rumors that people are going to come loot the suburbs and there were no looters, there weren't even protests, there were like, you know, 20 people downtown and a bunch, far more odd right-wingers out there. So. And you point out that for our modest little tenant farm to continue, we entered into a web of dependency on nonprofit organizations, USDA funding, and private philanthropy alongside the market and our own costs of living. Our role became tightly circumscribed in this way, and we found ourselves farming on a yearly lease cycle, working alone and struggling to expand ownership and social benefit of our nascent worker cooperative. Though we can and do push against these constraints, we are always vulnerable to being evicted, sued, or at worst, subject to white supremacist terror and harassment, and so we are obliged to move carefully. Is that why you only go by CE? Um, a little bit, but mostly it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I find it freeing to uh, go by a pseudonym. It makes it a lot less about my personal brand. I think there's like two kind of uh, opposing things. Part of it is that like operating in a food space like is surveilled in all these ways. Like, you know, I have a landlord to account to. <laughs> I have uh, like several landlords to account to, funders and uh, all kinds of people who are doing their thing. But then I think there's also an aspect where it's really easy to kind of run a grift on saying like, I am solving the future of food. I am going to be the one there's a lot of uh pressure to really market oneself and by having an ungoogleable uh acronym as my name it means that i'm trying to redirect people to just pay attention to the work and uh talk about the ideas if the ideas work let's carry them on i don't really want to fuss too much about me it's not about you it's not about branding yourself it's not about, about making you an, an avatar or a, a selling point and i really appreciate that because unfortunately that's what neoliberalism as our guest yesterday neil Vallelli, told us about uh, his theory of utilitarianism which you really got to look into uh about how uh, this is all kind of forced on us by neoliberalism and you write the whole year of 2020 had been violent and notably so on the terrain of food in spite of early fears the supply chain never broke down but it did get heavy Thousands of food processing, grocery, restaurant, and agricultural workers got sick and died, are still getting sick and dying, on the scale of atrocity. Food insecurity, then you have parenthetically, read poverty, skyrocketed in long lines at food banks, scared the hell out of the nation. And I'm cleaning up your language for radio. <laughs> so to you, does the term food insecurity, does that distract us from poverty? Because there are commentators who argue that inequality also obscures poverty, making it less visible. Does food insecurity do something similar? I think it certainly can. I think when it comes to a lot of these uh, terminologies, it's worth really paying attention to the fact that they are contested. If you look at like food security, 
that in particular is a term that is being contested both from like kind of like Koch brothers far right dimensions and from people who are on the radical left and who are really, uh, in the words of Ruth Olson Gilmore, organizing against their own abandonment. So when we talk about food security, I think it's uh, worth saying exactly what people mean. So there is kind of a uh, like corporate driven idea of food security. And that is like, you know, Kellogg Foundation is donating to a like big food bank and <clears throat> and what they're trying to do is really basically feed people on waste. Like the idea is that food security is achieved by having more food, increasing the production. And then if people aren't able to buy it for whatever reason, they don't like to think about it, uh, then we can organize all of the waste, all of the excess, like donations from private philanthropy and donations from the waste stream of uh, large scale commodity foods. And then people will have something to eat and there will be foods and that is food security. So I think there's also a very different idea of food security that um, is talking much more uh, in conversation with the concepts like food sovereignty and uh, kind of the corollary or the like opposite of it, uh, food apartheid. That is saying that for food security to happen, you need to have poor people, working people have uh, autonomy, have uh, the power to control and uh, manage their own resources. So food security as something that comes from radically democratic organizations from like, or at least from like a consultative process. So at least uh, food banks and emergency food systems, like working with the communities they have or from large government programs like SNAP. So there are people who are fighting for food security who are like, we need far greater funding for food stamps. And that I don't think is a distraction. That I think is very accurate. And I think that that is not a particularly neoliberal take. However, there are absolutely very neoliberal concepts of food security, uh, yeah, food security or food insecurity. So I do think, however, that the reframe to talking about poverty is really important. It's something that I don't think uh, we can miss in this. When we're talking about food insecurity, people who are food insecure are very poor. And often like the conversation around food, I think, yeah, I don't know. If you think about like what food insecurity really is, it's skipping meals, it's like buying like, cheap gas station food and like not really having quite enough, it's rarely that there is zero food. And it's a lot more likely that there is no money in someone's bank account or very limited opportunities. And so I think reframing the question to poverty allows us to get a lot uh, closer to the root causes of food insecurity. We are speaking with C.E., a farmer, warehouse worker, and independent scholar based in the state of Washington. C.E. wrote the New Inquiry article, Farming in the Shadow of the Shadow State, Growing Food and Getting Free in a World Built for Agricultural Capital. Let's talk about that. Agricultural capital, There, you write, there is no part of the U.S. food system that is untouched by state institutions. There are state agencies that act as landlords, funders, lenders, managers, money launderers and agents of dispossession. How does the state work like money launderers when it comes to our food system? I had a feeling you might bring that one up. Um, it's a catchy that, phrase. <laughs> it is a catchy phrase. 
I think that that's a challenging one to uh, say live on the radio or kind of like prove it with like enough like clarity. So I want to maybe like hedge a little bit and say that there is something a little bit like money laundering happening in the um, way that like subsidy happens. So if we look at the way that big commodity farms are uh, given subsidies. So a lot of these are direct payments or um, crop insurance. And one of the things I talk about is that crop insurance um, of the kind that goes to large commodity farmers, like has like a return of 120%. So like if you, a farmer that is spending a dollar on crop insurance is getting back $2.20, um, which is wild. That's not usually how insurance works. Um, and there are a lot of uh, ways that these kind of uh, direct payments that are from taxpayers, that are from uh, consumers ultimately, uh, are being kind of laundered through state institutions and going back to these large commodity farmers. So that was kind of more what I was getting at. But there are a lot of um, <laughs> there are a lot of very odd, sketchy uh, relationships with uh, nonprofits that I. I'm not necessarily in a place to <laughs> prove or discuss very def definitively, but there are just some odd uh, ways that nonprofits can act like shells of money and the ways that state agencies can uh, facilitate certain kinds of like land, real estate and other deals through uh, nonprofits and bureaucratic agencies. But why? <laughs> Why oppose the system that made your farm possible? Because you write, I write this essay because I've been disciplined by the system, because my own horizons have been narrowed by the nonprofit state agencies and regime of land, uh, landed property itself that made our farm possible. So why oppose the system that made your farm possible? Well, I think the way that I would think about it is I wrote this essay um, building on like a few years of really concentrated study to try to understand what was going on in the food system and how to describe it to people. And then June of 2020 happened and it became really clear to me that like a lot of the people that I uh, am working with and a lot of the kind of movement that I was a part of didn't really have much to say to this moment. So, you know, we're in this moment where there's like a 1905 level like uprising outside. And a lot of these people who are radically visioning for a new food system, a new future, new understanding of agriculture, don't have much to say, don't have practical lines of solidarity, aren't really able to do a whole lot um, in this context. And so that was a real challenge for me. So I wanted to, yeah, I think take on just kind of the line of critique, because this is it. Uh, I also say directly in there that this whole system is exhausting and stupid. Like, it's not, uh, it's not working very well. We're not actually getting all that much freer. And so I think I felt really strongly like I need to, yeah, I don't know, bring a critique that allows a lot of these, like, I think there's a lot of people who are very frustrated, who are trying to make social services happen um, in this country. And I think there are a lot of people who um, want a whole lot more. And so I created this essay as a chance to kind of talk about like practically, what is it like to push against a lot of these structural problems? So how can you 
do your job better if you are trying to do a job that is making the world better. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think we have a new tagline for the radio show, which is <clears throat> capitalism is exhausting and stupid and this is hell. Because <laughs> I think it's a very good tagline. You point out that landowners are eager to defend their real estate portfolios and status as settler gentry, as well as the honor of the agribusiness cartels allegedly feeding the world. Why do you say they are allegedly feeding the world? Because it's a phrase that's always used and it always bothers me. So why do you say they're allegedly feeding the world? Yeah. So uh, talking about U.S. farmers feeding the world is a really, really common uh, line, one that comes a lot from these various like agribusiness uh, (laughs) cartels. It's like they really don't like it when you call them a cartel, but when you have like a group of like enormous soybean farms and like the I forget the exact name, but the you know, U.S. Soybean Council, and they're all advocating for the same policy, and they're all looking out for each other. It's kind of a cartel. Um, yeah, so a lot of this like line about feeding the world is used to justify a really specific sense of uh, what that means. So I talked a little bit earlier about um, food insecurity as this idea that on the right is about increasing the total volume of food. So when people are saying like U.S. farmers are feeding the world, we have to figure out how we feed the world. A lot of that is about increasing the total volume of farm commodities that are going out to the world. So what does that actually mean? On our end, um, it means a lot of these practices that are about increasing just like total volume per acre. So that means the um, intensive uh, chemical agriculture So using the expensive herbicides, using the GM crops, using the um, fertilizers and all of this stuff that is like ultimately pretty uh, bad for our health, you know, creating a lot of agricultural runoff, creating a lot of health problems for the farm workers who have to apply this stuff to the field. And yeah, it's not so good. On the other hand, you have uh, a process of export dumping. Um, So where the U.S. is sending commodities below kind of what would be a fair market price, um, and that's a little bit contested, but in general, sending commodities out that are undercutting everywhere in the global south. There's a really classic example, which is after uh, NAFTA in 1994, the part of NAFTA was taking away, I believe, tariffs, but some are another protection for uh, Mexican dairy farmers. So the U.S. uh, took advantage of this to flood the market with cheap uh, milk powder, like evaporated milk, a lot of these easy-to-store, like rock-bottom uses of extra U.S. dairy. And so what happens is that all of these uh, dairy farmers who were kind of holding on before are just crushed because their local market is flooded with a much cheaper product. So now a whole bunch of family dairy farmers in Sonora are trying to figure out what to do. You get a lot of people going north to the growing uh, maquiladoras on the border. So you have uh, people who would have been dairy farmers working in the auto uh, factory. And that is kind of this like broad process of neocolonialism. It is undermining the um, economic self-determination of other nations. And at the same time, 
the increase, this total volume, it's not necessarily getting to everybody because it's all heavily marketized. So you have all the food, not everyone can afford the food, and there's not really a great way of getting that to people. And so this process of feeding the world is often meaning that, you know, here in the United States, if you're poor, you can have as much uh, palm oil and uh, soybean oil, corn and wheat as you want. And elsewhere in the world, it means that the kinds of smallholder farms that would be able to regularly sustain your community have been undermined and replaced with uh, cheap green imports. So allegedly feeding the world is definitely the way to put it. It's not so much feeding the world as it is uh, overpowering the U.S. food system or not, uh, global food system, excuse me. Right. Now, I want to, make, I want to uh, get to that point because you write that Congress has taken, as one Politico writer delicately put it, a hands-off approach towards the USDA's fire hose of money. Though the principle of paying rich landowners just for owning land is long established, the USDA claimed that the recent rise in ad hoc payments began in order to fight, quote, Unfair and illegal trade retaliation from China. Trade retaliation here means challenging even slightly the U.S.'s monopolistic global market share, and with it the ability to dump agricultural commodities, as you were pointing out, below market price on the global south. Such dumping and monopolism are integral to both the interests of the United States, listed uh, agricultural companies, and arguably U.S. geopolitical strength. They expand the reach of U.S. finance and biotech and enforce relationships of dependency upon commodity supplying states. So I guess I got two questions. It's just one question, I guess. How much of a monopoly does the U.S. have over global agriculture? And more importantly, how dependent is U.S. power on that monopolism? That is a challenging thing to uh, quantify. I think in general, uh, it's worth maybe thinking about it a little bit less that U.S. agriculture is in a monopolistic position. Um, I think the U.S. Uh, agricultural system does exert like a kind of, uh, it's not necessarily monopolistic, but it is an imperfect competition. So using that kind of dumping, expanding its market share beyond what um, I think would happen if other countries were able to develop um, as they wanted. Um, but what is absolutely monopolistic is this kind of like high finance system. So when you go kind of up the chain a little bit, you have uh, these really major uh, investment firms. So people like BlackRock. Um, so BlackRock uh, pension funds like TIAA, these are kind of uh, these high finance arenas that are pretty heavily invested in agriculture and are benefiting from these ongoing booms that are happening around the global south. So I think uh, a really great example is kind of soy. Um, so we have the U.S. soy production. U.S. creates a lot of soy. I think we're still the number one producer. I'm not entirely sure about that. Might be somewhere else. Um, so the U.S. produces a whole lot of soybeans. We have all of these subsidies directed towards U.S. soybean farmers. It keeps the price of soy really, really rock bottom. So what that means is that we're able to effectively undercut just about anywhere else. And that's because we have these subsidies in place. Um, I've seen calculations that without the subsidy, it would rise to a level that's pretty comparable with Brazil or China or anywhere else. 
excuse me. Um, so the so yeah, so we have all that subsidy going to U.S. soy farmers, and that means that they're able to undercut people down in Brazil. Now you look at people like BlackRock, who are heavily invested in various Brazilian uh, agribusiness. Um, and so what that means is they are investing in Brazilian agribusiness. That Brazilian agribusiness is now saying, we need to uh, you know, get a return on our investment. And they're contracting it out to whoever is farming, whoever is sending them commodities. Soybean prices are rock bottom, so it means that it's a challenge to intensify production. Um, people aren't making enough, um, or they're not getting the returns that their investors want uh, just on the existing land base they have. So they expand the land base. Um, and so you look at uh, processes like deforestation, like land theft of indigenous people um, in the Amazon especially, and also um, Gosh, I'm forgetting the um, name of the region, but an area around Bahia. Um, so there's this massive deforestation to expand soybean uh, plantations, to expand cattle ranching. And then you have US-based finance firms like BlackRock that are invested basically in the entire global economy who are benefiting on this land rush, who are benefiting on this rush to produce more and more and more of these commodities. So. The actual U.S. farmers, it's not so much that there is a monopoly, so much as uh, all of these individual farmers have a role in this kind of uh, global system that relies on really high levels of capital concentration at the very top. And I think it's worth talking about monopolies, too, in the sense that when we're looking at U.S. farmers, the bulk of them are family-owned. If you're talking about... Um, the yeah if you're talking about like the future of farming in the us a lot of people really like to talk about like you know a family farm future and there are family farms who are great um there are a lot of family farms also who are these uh contractors basically for uh massive international capital and those are you know the people who are running CAFOs, the concentrated animal feeding operations those are the people who are you know feeding into the commodity market um, these are also family-owned farms. These uh, can sometimes be gigantic family-owned farms, like you know, several thousand-acre estates, uh, but they are still family-owned. So a lot of people will look at the U.S. food system and say, well, what are you talking about? There's no monopolies. They're all different farms. But it's the kind of political concentration. It is this like unity of state power of these uh industry like councils and boards and high finance where you start to see something more like a monopoly you point out <clears throat> excuse me you point out that roughly two-thirds of registered farms are hobby farms retirement pod projects and tax shelters often enough all three far from being productive pillars of the community they are essentially the yards of the upper middle class as science journalist maggie Korth put it, a large pool of suburban and rural pop property holders benefit from programs originally intended for agriculture and a large, larger still group benefit from the consistently rising price of land and housing through house flipping and investment properties. It is here to the successively enfranchised stratum of society that state financing of imperialism trickles down. How does state financing of imperialism 
abroad trickled down to rich suburbanites with big yards. And is this trickling process, trickling down process to rich suburbanites with huge yards based upon white privilege? Can people of color who own large yards in urban or suburban areas get the same benefits? Okay, so to answer the first question, so we talk about that kind of subsidy process, right? Um, there are a lot of other um, incentives for owning agricultural land in the United States. And I say owning because a lot of it is disconnected from production. So when you look at those uh, statistics for farms, the standard for what a farm is, is an area of land that could make $1,000 of sales in a year. So $1,000, like that's not very much. Um, and also the important word there is could. There's often not a burden of uh, proving that you regularly do make all of that uh, money. So it's really easy to say, I have two cows and five acres. I could be making $1,000 of milk in a year and to start to get these tax breaks. A lot of it is uh, tax breaks. So on like, uh, and here we're talking about a real like patchwork. Every municipality, every county, every state is really different. But there are a lot of these local level uh, tax breaks and ways of basically like hiding income uh, in agricultural real estate. So these are programs that are meant to benefit kind of these big commodity farmers, but it's really easy to access them if you just happen to own a decent amount of land that is theoretically agricultural. So, yeah, so basically the state financing is intended for these commodity farmers. The commodity farmers uh, are producing into a circuit that is meant to essentially exert a kind of geopolitical influence, so imperialism. And then the people who are the neighbors to these commodity farms who are, you know, landowners, people who own homes on four or five acres, are then able to access some of these tax breaks, conservation easements, and stuff like that, that were intended for uh, ag. And so, yeah, as far as the question of like people of color, I think that's really contentious. And I think that's really a complicated thing to break down. I think that uh, there's a way yeah, I don't have a really great answer for that. Um, I know that uh, generally, like middle-class people of color are often struggling in ways that are not very similar to white counterparts. And at the same time, there are kind of these economic relationships. I think one of the things that I think is really interesting to unpack when we're talking about agriculture is that uh, there is a lot of room for people who rely on these systems that aren't really great, that they know aren't great, um, and to not really have a better way around it. So example, if you want to start a farm in this country, you're either going to have to work through a bunch of nonprofits or be middle-class, save up enough money and buy some land. Once you have that land, more likely than not, you're not going to make a whole bunch of money off of it right away. It's going to take a lot of investment and take a lot of time. And that status as like a tax shelter is going to be really important. You're going to uh, be under a lot of pressure to uh, use those systems to like try to not pay taxes, to try to like make a paper loss out of whatever you do. And you're uh, 
uh, under that pressure in a way that maybe somebody who is just like house flipping on agricultural land is not. So yeah, I think it's a really uh, dense thing. And I think the actual position of like any uh, landowner is like something that needs to be worked out pretty particularly. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you point out in your article that the state gave far more money, far exceeding the losses that big agriculture uh, would have had during the 2020 part of the pandemic, uh, that they gave way more subsidies to them, far outweighing the losses that they had. So did the stock market, to what degree did it go up during the pandemic? Because it was propped up by the state giving huge amounts of money to agriculture, far exceeding their losses. As far as the stock market and agriculture, I'm not sure of the exact relationship there. Um, I do know the commodity prices stayed pretty stable during uh, um, during 2020. And in general, I think it's worth looking at stability as um, kind of the vector here. It's not so much that... Um, there was just a giveaway. It's that the giveaway was intended to stabilize all these asset prices. So homes staying the same price, stocks staying the same price, commodities staying the same price. Generally, this like slow, predictable, gentle rise is what they're aiming for. And that's really baked into a lot of policy these days. I think especially when it comes to agriculture. Um, agriculture policy has been since pretty much the New Deal, we've been really focused on uh, maintaining consistent prices and preventing volatility. And so when you're preventing volatility, I think that that, in some kind of complex ways, means that you, it's a question of who you're protecting from volatility, right? So if you're looking at uh, 2020, where did the money go? what were they trying to stabilize in this like uncertain moment? The vast majority of the money is going towards uh, stabilizing business. It's stabilizing the economy and not so much stabilizing individual lives. 2020 was a little different than, you know, 2008 as uh, the example. So 2020, we did actually get those direct payments. We did actually get um, increases in unemployment in a lot of areas, but in general, this uh, project of containing volatility was very much about making sure that rich people's profits stay in place, not so much that everybody else gets to have a consistent uh, livelihood. I've got a couple more questions for you, CE, and this one's sure. going to really annoy you because it's going to probably need a longer answer. You write, this is an exhausting and deeply stupid system. God, I love that phrase. Posed against <laughs> it are a few necessary pillars of thought. Food as a human right, food sovereignty for oppressed communities, immediate return of land to indigenous communities, reparations for slavery and its legacy through land distribution and the decommodification of food. Why is the decommodification of food to you so important? Oh, gosh. Yeah, that is a complicated one. See, I told you. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, like, you know, the short answer is that I'm a communist. Uh, the long answer uh, is that I I believe really sincerely that the market is not a appropriate mechanism for getting people what the things that they need. Um, I think that Capitalism as it exists does not work, or rather, it works at very specific things. 
it works at gaining kind of market efficiency. It works at filling all the gaps where demand exists. But what it does not work at is uh, raising people's standard of living. I don't think capitalism uh, contributes to the flourishing of the whole world. I think it contributes to the flourishing of a few people. So I think when we have uh, matters of survival, like people's housing, people's food, people's water, I just don't think it makes sense to have that allocated on a market basis. I don't think that if you have more money, you should be able to eat better food. I just don't think that that makes sense. I think everybody should be able to eat a very high standard of food that they themselves are in charge of uh, choosing for themselves. So that's more or less the gist of it. I think that when we're talking about the materials of human survival, it just does not make sense to have that on a market basis. I think it is a right. I think it is uh, what everybody deserves. So. One last question for you, CE. I think so. Oh, uh, yes. One last question for you. Uh, yeah. we, our final question for all of our guests is what we call the question from hell. And if I can find it here in my notes, I'll ask it to you. Hold it one second. <laughs> here it is. Uh, so you write, uh, the final question is called the question from hell. We do this with all of our guests, I promise. It's the question we mm -hmm. hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You have this brilliant part of your article that says, uh, you write, this approach calls for an especially careful practice of solidarity, seeking shared common struggle and terrain without expecting sameness. This is to say, not imagining unity or mutuality where none exists, resisting the imperative to discipline the unruly masses, and instead taking up responsibility for one limited compromised part of liberation. Organizations formed this way might serve as a kind of detachment from much larger autonomous movements to which they remain accountable. How is it possible to have unity without sameness? Isn't imagining unity and mutuality what it means to find common ground? Yeah, that is, I'm not so sure about that. So what I'm citing in uh, that moment there is a really great passage from uh, a book called Lavender and Red by uh, Emily Hobson. Uh, a great book that everybody should check out about the gay and lesbian left in San Francisco in like the 70s and 80s. Um, and what she's quoting is she's talking about um, these structures of solidarity that were built by lesbian feminists of color um, in solidarity with uh, the Sandinistas in uh, Nicaragua at the time. And yeah, uh, <laughs> I think that Unity or sameness is something that uh, is really easy to mobilize around. It's really easy to kind of create an idea of we're all in this together in the same way. And I also think that it ends up being a really thin concept. When you actually get into it, there are all of these uneven uh, distributions of clout, distributions of risk. The person who is like a college student on their gap year going into uh, a major struggle is having something really different than somebody who is like, I got fired from my job for protesting. So I think that it's really worth understanding um, solidarity in a way where it is more about kind of, this is a little abstract, but like meeting these obligations towards another, like saying, 
you are a human and I don't know what you need. I don't know what you want, but I need you to flourish because you need me to flourish because we all need each other to flourish. So looking at somebody and saying, I don't know what you need. What do you need? How can I help? Um, rather than saying, we're all in this together. I know what you need. I know what I want and I'm going to get it done for both of us. Does that make sense? Yes, and that is an exceptional answer to the question from hell. And CE, whenever you are going to, or when you ever you have another article posted, please contact us because I've really, really not only enjoyed your writing, but I've really enjoyed our conversation today. So please contact awesome. us when you have something else out and about. Great, thank you so much. And yeah, I am so glad to be here. Uh, really appreciate the chance to be on uh, God's favorite radio show. See, thank you very much for knowing a tagline. Thank you so much for being on our show. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. See, everybody's accepting the fact that this is God's favorite radio show now. I can't blame them. If that conversation with CE on food justice and farming was in some way enlightening to you or made you feel more educated or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks for your support. Richard, please remind our listening audience what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Yes, this week's question from hell is, what is the best thing that you found lying in the street. Have you figured out what the best thing is that you've ever found lying in the street? I did. All right, sweet. Hold yours at the end. Wait (laughs) for yours at the end. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, Alex read Wojciak's response, but I'm going to read it again because it ties in with a few other, uh, something else going on here. Okay. uh, Wojciak answers July 3rd, 1992. Walking north on Lower Columbus Drive after the annual Grant Park fireworks toward a bar where a friend was working, I was thinking, man, I could use a beer. Just then, a full unopened can of beer was sitting on the ledge overlooking the small golf course below. Without breaking stride, I nabbed the beer, popped it open, and drank it down gleefully. Right, so Richard, so what kind of beer was that? I'm going to say... Oh, PBR. <laughs> I was going to say Bud Light. I was going <laughs> to well, say Bud go. that, Light. That's, that's probably better. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Simon An- S. answers myself. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best thing you can find lying on the street. <laughs> What's the best thing you can f- you found lying on the street? Mike M. answers, I found a sticker on the ground that had, quote, rejected by <laughs> printed on it. And the coolest person alive had written... Quote, everybody in the open space on the sticker. <laughs> Curly B answers a Fibes 1970s clear ac- acrylic drum set. Oh, so that's, that's something. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. <laughs> Soul uh, H answers my screaming toddlers. <laughs> you just find them on the street. <laughs> That's some parenting you got going on. Scott W answers $100 cash. Oh, there you go. Bob W answers while living in the Congo, I found a loop, Lupamban pick, which is basically a stone knife from the Middle Stone Age from 100 to 200,000 years ago. Wow. Lying in the road. 
pretty wow. amazing. That's that's amazing. That's that's got to be the leader so far. What is the best thing you found lying in the street? Kim G answers 260 smackers. <laughs> that's pretty good too. <laughs> Peter K answers a $50 bill balled up on a Columbus Drive sidewalk. Jeez. Whoopee. <laughs> that's pretty good. So if you're looking for something to find on the street, <laughs> go to Columbus Drive. Yeah, sounds like a great place to go. I think people are going to uh, the Billy Goat. And they're getting a little bit <laughs> too antsy. Jessica B answers, found a gold wedding band next to a pile of yard waste. It's even set with little diamond bits. Wow. There you go. Warren L answers, Black Friday puddles. <laughs> Not quite sure what that is. Yeah, I don't want to know. <laughs> Brian M. answers, environment protester. Okay. And our last one for today for what is the best thing you found lying in the street? Eddie C. answers, D's drawers. <laughs> All right, so what's you the best thing you ever found on the street, Richard? So once when I was walking back from uh, the... The library on Grand Avenue, I found a, uh, it was kind of a herd. It was like a, a jumble of like a, like a hundred hanger, wire hangers. <laughs> it was amazing. It was like an art sculpture, just like, or a tumbleweed of hangers just kind of rolling down the street. It was amazing. I took a picture of it and posted it online. It was <laughs> I think the, the worst thing a friend of mine found when he was in sixth grade was uh, he found an ounce of weed on the street and it really kind of screwed up his life. <laughs> so, because at sixth grade, an ounce uh, of weed, yes. yeah, yeah, you're still developing, you know. He got a perfect SAT and ACT score and was offered a whole bunch of scholarships, so maybe it didn't do so bad for him. Uh, so, uh, yesterday we mentioned how we received a package in the mail and we had no idea who sent it. By the way, we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. All we knew about the package is that it was from Ashrafan in Arlington Heights, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. Inside was one pound of natural sun-dried mulberries, which claims to be a rich source of vitamin C, fiber, and antioxidants, a one-pound jar of white high mountain raw honey, and a one-pound bag of wild forest walnuts, which, according to the label on the bag, are harvested from the wild forest of Arslanbab in the Kurz Republic. But the only people we know in Kyrgyzstan are the good people who write for Hypocrite Reader. Find out more about Hypocrite Reader at hypocritereader.com Follow them on Twitter at HypocriteRDR. So we figured that's who it was from. But it was only speculation on my part. That's when Alex informed me that the staff at Hypocrite Reader had actually moved back to the States. So I started second-guessing if the package was indeed from the good folks at Hypocrite Reader. This morning, the mystery was solved. We got an email at chuckatthisishell.com from Erica at Hypocrite Reader, who writes... Hello, Chuck, Alex, and company. I just finished listening to your most recent episode, yesterday's show, and heard the bit about the mystery package. As you correctly surmised, da -da 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 -da, it was for me, but I did not intend it to be so mysterious. I returned to Kyrgyzstan in August and wanted to send This Is House some honey as a gift. The honey here is very famous. I never cared for honey. 
until I came here and saw the error of my ways. Now, I'm super curious what this honey tastes like. However, the shipping price I was quoted was 150 bucks. But I found Kerr's goods store in the U.S. that made the price more reasonable. I asked them to include a note identifying the sender, but I guess they forgot. I didn't really mean to make it so unabomber <laughs> It's just pretty funny. I really got to think about opening up boxes before I actually do and maybe shake them a little here, see if they're ticking or anything. Erica says, sorry about that. Anyway, I just wanted to send a gift to thank you for having me as a guest on the show, which was a total highlight of my year, as well as for all the support you have shown us at Hypocrite Reader. It truly means a lot. Best wishes best wishes for the end of the year and the year to come, Erica. So Erica was on the show back in June when we talked to her about her article, The Other Nuremberg Trials, 75 Years on Failures in Prosecuting the Businessmen Who Profited from the Nazi War Machine, showed just how far post-war Europe and America were willing to go in the Cold War quest to protect capitalism, which blew the minds of a lot of listeners. People had no idea that there was this other set of Nuremberg trials separate from the Nazi war criminal trials that you're so familiar. You can find that interview right now by either searching Eisen, because Erica's name is Erica X Eisen, E-I-S-E-N on our site, thisishell.com, or using any search engine and entering Erica Eisen and the words, this is hell. Thank you so much for the gift, Erica. I cannot wait to try the honey. Listeners, if you would like to send us actual stuff in the actual mail, as Erica has done, address it to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. You can also send your guests and topic suggestions. Tell us what your favorite interviews or shows were this year on This Is Hell so we can put them in our best of shows that are going to be airing on the final two weeks of 2021 or just share your thoughts on the show and we'll likely read what you have to say on the air richard who is on tomorrow's thursday's live one hour show at 10 a.m chicago time right here at this is hell.com oh it's our dear friend who i've been uh <laughs> i've been saying his name for, for weeks <laughs> weeks Oh, I just got to find it. It's funny. All right, here we go. Um, Thursday, we have Magda L. Gazzoli on his article, Counter-Revolution in Sudan. Finally. Finally. <laughs> this has actually worked out. He still wasn't responding to us just before the show. Minutes before the show, he finally confirmed. And as I have that interview already in the can, in that I have the notes here, it hasn't been recorded, I'm very happy. It means my work won't be intense today. Uh, so, uh, and then we'll have Jeff Dorchin. Yes, sir. And Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth as well. Finally, I'd like to congratulate the New York Times for successfully doing the bidding of the wealthy in Wall Street by hyping inflation to the point that the Fed has, as the Times celebrates in today's front page headline, signaled that there will be no more stimulus checks because inflation is so damn high. Of course, the Times does not use the word stimulus in the headline. Here's the exact headline that they have. Spurred by inflation fears, Fed signals an end to fiscal support. Instead, they go with the far more innocuous term, fiscal support. In fact, inflation is so high, the Times does not mention 
what the inflation rate is anywhere in the article or what it has been since the pandemic started, which is far lower than the actual inflation rate following a pandemic fueled deflation last year. So inflation, I know you might think it's bad, but if you go back to 2019, it's around 3%, which is about what it has been over a very long period of time. The Times does mention there is a contraction in the stock market, which seems to be the Times' far greater concern, despite the Dow being higher today than it was when the pandemic began. Whether it's Wall Street, the State Department, or the Pentagon, the Times is always willing to legitimize liberal government policies. And no, I'm not using liberal as opposed to in the Fox News way. Just look at their coverage of the Honduras election this week, which is comical, in which they claim the U.S. wants stability in Honduras and cannot wait to work with a new government, which is led by the wife of the former Honduran president who the U.S. helped overthrow in a coup because of his socialist policies. Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State at the time. The United States was the first country to recognize the coup government. This is not mentioned anywhere in the article. So, Honduras, a little pro tip from your friends here at This Is Hell. Please, start preparing yourself for another coup in which the military and neoliberalism will take over in order, do it now, I would say, in order now, do it now in order to avoid the Christmas rush. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thank you, Richard, for producing. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's and all of this week's guests. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>